and welcome to Let's Pod This. I was not entirely ready for that. Um, Let's Pod This, which is the highest rated Oklahoma politics podcast. I don't know if you know that, Bo. No, I did not know that. Congratulations. Thank you. We're, we're very proud of that. And Except, thank you to all the fans out there clapping, apparently. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. We, uh, I said this earlier tonight in a, uh, in a panel discussion with uh, for Big Wing Creative and their Lyft sessions they have, which is a social media marketing, online marketing, free networking thing. We have more reviews and higher reviews than all the other, po- all the other like three Oklahoma politics podcasts in town. Do we have more than all of them combined? Ooh, I think we. I think we might. We, if we might. If we don't, it's close. Yes, uh, they are. They are all excellent podcasts as well. We're just the best. But we're looking to pat our numbers. So if you have not gone on to rate and review the show, <laughs> if you would, we would be so grateful. That's right. Anyway, uh, my name is Andy Moore, and I'm the executive director of Let's Fix This. I'm joined by my weekly co-host, and I can can I just say like a man who knows a lot about a lot of things, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. That's uh, that's very generous. Uh, well, that's it's accurate, also. Um, uh, and also, we're joined by uh, Bo Broadwater from the Journal Record, a man who pretends to know a lot of things. This is true. Yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And welcome. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Um, so this year, there are a maximum of one hundred and sixteen calendar days in the regular legislative session. Uh, from February 4th to May 31st, and today is day 44, I believe, perhaps 45, depending on when you listen. We're recording this on Wednesday, March 20th, so that means, according to the calendar, we're roughly a third of the way through this session. Last week, we passed a major deadline in the life of legislation. It means in order to stay alive, all bills need to have passed out of committee and passed the floor of the Chamber of Origin so that all the House bills have to be fully passed out of the House and all the Senate bills have to be fully passed out of the Senate and sent over to the opposite chamber. So we started the year with 2,815 bills and joint resolutions, and now we're down to just under 1,000. It's like uh, 820, I think? Something like that. Was yeah. it that Seems low? Right. Oh, I it's thought it was... Like 810 or 820. It was like 940, but then I think the updated count was like 820. Oh, okay. So they... They thought they had some, and that was just a yeah. stack yeah. of napkins yeah. on right. someone's desk. Right. Uh, so this week, uh, it was spring break, which apparently is still a thing for somebody in this world. I haven't had spring break in 17 years. but And then somebody asked me, like, are you doing anything for spring break? I said, I'm yes, working. I'm, I'm working. I'm an adult. Um, I'll be seeing lots of children because that's when they come for their checkups. That's true, yeah. Um, my kids, I, I had dinner with them this evening, and they were quite bored already. <laughs> so, um, but since it's been a bit of a snooze at the uh, at the Capitol this week, um, we'd started decided to do a couple of things. One, we canceled our um, our um, Capitol day for tomorrow because there's no one going to be up there. There's no legislators really to, with whom to visit, uh, and also for this episode, we decided to get caught up on. What bills have died? Uh, what bills are still alive? And maybe kind of the the state of some of them. So, um, before we do that, though, let's start with the bills that Governor Stitt has already signed. There are eleven of them altogether, and in kind of broad category. Scott, I see you have uh, appended my notes. I appreciate that. <laughs> it was quite late that I was uh, making these notes last night as my neighbors uh, got into a drunken tussle in the front yard. Um, so uh, abortion, uh, there's some abortion bills, a bill um, yeah. that has passed and been signed, right? 
Yeah, I think so. This is this is the one, right, that uh, the Senator Treat mm-hmm. amended. Is this like the trigger <clears throat> bill? Uh, yeah, right. So this basically says that like that if uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, that one has that has not been signed yet. So mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. changed it. So he he uh, when it came to the Senate floor, he put in a floor sub mm-hmm. that will basically. It's not the trigger bill. It basically says that the Oklahoma it's a constitutional it'll be a constitutional bill to go to a vo- go to go to a vote of the people. Um, so I think it's technically. Bo, do you know is it a resolution or is it a bill? Uh, it's still, <clears throat> and I could be wrong here. I should know this considering this is what I do for a living. But it, right now it's still as a Senate Bill one ninety five, I believe. Okay, right. And so, but if it's passed and signed by the governor, it will then go to a vote of the people, right? Because it's a proposed constitutional change. And what it would do is it would put in the Oklahoma Constitution that abortion is able to be regulated in a way that is different from other medical procedures, right? Like there are several provisions, but I think that that's kind of the the gist of it. Is that? Yeah, <clears throat> and there was there was quite a long uh, floor debate on it. So. Uh, you know, it was really interesting. I don't know if you can go back and watch that. I don't know if the, uh, in fact, Andy last night was one of the people who responded to me. The Senate website's having some issues. It it's was back up today. Night. Yeah, it is back up today. But, um, you know, I think that I don't know why Treat, uh, you know, amended the the bill the way he did. Uh, maybe pressure from outside groups. I'm not for sure. But uh, that's that's the route. It's it's taking at this time so uh, my understanding is that the rationale for changing it was that um essentially that the according to the oklahoma constitution as it's written now and according to rulings that have been issued by the oklahoma supreme court that have said that like some of the bills they have been passed trying to regulate abortion are unconstitutional this would take away that argument for part of part of senator Treat's floor speech was essentially saying that you know, one of the issues we have in Oklahoma is not only that nationally Roe v. Wade is still in effect. And so, you know, as, as of today, there is a constitutional right to an abortion. Um, it's also that judges here in Oklahoma have interpreted our constitution in such a way that kind of ties the legislature's hands a little bit in terms of how they can regulate this procedure. And this bill is seen as a fix to that. That's my uh, I will confess somewhat limited understanding because this this was a very late breaking thing that happened last week. It happened on a day that the Senate passed like ninety bills. Um, like I said it was a fl- it was a floor sub, so nobody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume somebody people knew it was coming, but a lot of people didn't know it was coming. And it's just it's it's kind of on my list of things to look for as it heads over to the House, but. Um, I, d- I don't have all the details on it yet. Well, like you said, it sets up the uh, the pathway for you know the barriers, the people that uh, are you know anti-abortion. That those barriers that they've run into, this would essentially knock, remove those. Yeah, knock some of those down. Yeah. But right. so that has not been signed by the governor yet. But we do have Andy next. You have permitless carry. Right. Yeah. So permitless carry, we've talked about ad nauseum on this uh, on this podcast. So that's the uh, the ability to carry a firearm whenever you want for most Oklahomans. Pew, pew. Um, but, Scott, I see you have a note here that there is a veto referendum in the works for 2020. Uh, that is my understanding. So a veto referendum essentially means that um, a petition goes on the ballot where a majority of the people can say, we don't actually, we don't like this law and we want to overturn it. Um, veto referendums are interesting. Um, as we had talked about last year when we were looking at, you know, state question uh, uh, 780 the or 788, the marijuana state question, you know, there was a lot of like, are they going to get the number of signatures? And it's really important because turnout this year is going to be so high. 
And if they don't get signatures this year or it doesn't pass this year and they have to try and get signatures in the future, it's going to take a lot more. So veto referendums actually don't require nearly as many signatures as like constitutional changes and state questions. Um, I believe a veto referendum, it's like five percent yeah it's like forty thousand votes uh, or 36 something. yeah 36 not bad guess then <laughs> 36 36 thousand votes next year um and there is a group that's working on uh trying to get a veto referendum for uh, the permitless carry bill to be on the ballot in 2020 so. i i will say just as a an aside i think if every group that is working on some kind of state question gets their act together and gets their signatures before 2020, we're going to have a very long ballot yeah. in addition to a presidential election. We're going to need two, uh, two days for election. The lines yeah. are going to be long. It's going to be an exciting uh, time for let's fix this. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Another interesting point about veto referendums though. Um, the legislature should, should there be a, any kind of veto referendum that uh, passes with a vote of the people, the legislature can't undo it. Like they can't be they can't like override the veto. Yeah. They can't override it. Be like, no, we're good, bro. We really want to do this. <laughs> they they have to abide by it. So that's uh, something that's kind of in the works for permitless carry. All right. So then um, another bill that has been passed and signed by the governor is uh, the so-called unity bill that deals with medical marijuana. We've talked about that a lot on the show as well. Um, and it looks like I'm going to play our uh, – do I still have it? Yeah. Yeah, you do. I'll play our reggae music in the background. Whenever we talk about medical marijuana, it just feels somewhat tongue-in-cheek appropriate to play this. Um, and so uh, we are... Um, when I get Bo dancing to this. <laughs> um, so uh, there is a lawsuit trying to block this, which this story was just this week. Um, I think we're going to link to it in the, in the blog post with this. Because the attorney that filed it is... Um, Julie Azell. Julie Azell, who was previously the general counsel for the health department. And she resigned amidst criminal charges. That which she, are still pending. <laughs> felony charges that are still pending about her, like, dealing with this very issue. Yeah. It was just like... Is maybe, that the one that was trying to get a job or give she, a job? Or? Yeah. She, yeah. like, faked emails to herself. Oh, and yes. then like lied to investigators about the emails that she'd faked to herself. Well, I know and, that was only last year, but man, that seems so long ago. <laughs> right? It right? really, it really does. Um, yeah. So uh, Julia Ezel uh, has, along with a uh, another attorney, and the other attorney is Colin Rocket. Uh, they're with uh, what's called Canalog. That's a cool name, right? Colin W. Rocket. Uh, they are with the Canalog Group in Oklahoma City. Uh, they are. They have filed a lawsuit that names uh, Tom Bates, who is interim commissioner of health, the health department in the state of Oklahoma, as defendants, and they are basically saying that the so-called Unity Bill, which is the bill that the Joint Working Group has been working on, you know, ever since '78 passed, um, they are saying that this is unconstitutional because it violates due process rights of uh, patients who use medical marijuana, um, and it also, I mean, they make a, they make several kind of constitutional arguments. Um, like saying that she would not be able to, like a patient who uh, is using medical marijuana can't determine what acts would subject them to loss of their business license or be able to like defend themselves against um, 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 uh, accusations. And they're also saying that the safety sensitive jobs, so this is what Senator McCourtney talked about saying that, right? Like there's certain jobs where if you test positive for THC, right? Like you're it's done. bad like, news, right? Yeah. Um, and they're saying that, that, that that's not constitutional because there's no accurate test for THC intoxication. Like you can check for, like you can have somebody pee in a cup and see if it's positive, but it can be positive for certainly days, like if not 30, weeks. 30 yeah. days, something um, right. Uh, weeks afterwards. And so they're saying that you, you can't have that as a, like you can't have this safety provision in there because there's no way 
like there's no way to tell if it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know how you regulate that. And, and, and the thing about that is, that, you know, I, trust me, I don't want bus drivers, you know, being high while they're driving buses. But you would never in a million years test a bus driver for uh, antidepressants. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, and so, I don't know, it's just a... I think I some of this, yeah, well, some of that goes to like the stigma associated with medical marijuana sure. and and the the public perception that everyone's just like smoking dope and getting high, and that is that is very different than actual like medicinal use of this. Um, but the stigma persists in our community, and so this will take I think years to really oh, yeah. get behind. Absolutely. So, all right, um, and then moving on to the last really section of. Uh, of bills that have been passed and signed by the governor into law. And that is probably the biggest section. And I don't know if it's most important. We'll get to that in a second, but um, bills granting the governor, the ability to hire and fire agency heads and the, just the general restructuring of the agency boards and and all that. We talked a lot about that last week, two weeks ago with uh, Senator Kurt. um, And uh, that's a big deal. So I think, um, and we're just really starting to see the front edge of that. It'll happen more, and it really won't have a bit, huge imp- excuse me, impact until next year, I think, as, as he appoints new agency heads and board members, and this stuff kind of rolls out, and we start seeing what it looks like. So, I mean, this is a rebuilding year, right? This is a, after eight years of the Fallon administration, we we got some new receivers in there. We're <laughs> going to get them trained, got to get them down, got to focus on the on the uh, the basics. What's the thing? Fundamentals. Yes. Exactly. Drink. Ball Working handling. on fundamentals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> blocking or blocking and tackling as the governor likes to say. He did say that a lot in the interview. We'll get back to that too. Um, so I think um, there's a couple of good articles. Journal Record. Hello, Bo. That's, that's your paper of yes. choice. Yes, subscribe. Um, subscribe. Yes. Um, rate also if that's an option. Um, this is an article about um, saving a billion dollars um, and – by maximizing efficiencies in IT and tech stuff, which, um, as we as we said earlier, like the Senate website went down. Although I don't think that the legislature's websites are under OMES's purview, which is arguably part of the problem. That I think they manage their own structure. There's a bunch of like they have totally separate IT things for the House and Senate. Yeah, the House the House site was fine. Yeah, they have night. so yeah. they have totally separate email servers. Some of, one of them has like the backup in the building. One of them doesn't. There's a lot of weird stuff, and they've been very resistant to some changes. In fact, even trying to upgrade the wiring for the phone system and part of the restoration project, um, I know has been um, an ongoing struggle where the chambers have to pay for some of those repairs, and they like we we're not going to. I was like, well, you're not going to have phones then. I mean, this yeah. this is 2019, man. So, well, you know, the websites themselves are just amazing. Um, so, <laughs> it's like something I would have designed in eight, eighth grade, and I won't it's, tell you when that was, but it was a long time ago. Just <laughs> GeoCities yeah. sites. For it's when it's it's. I think when you were in eighth grade, or when I was in eighth grade, probably about about the same time. And I'll say the World Wide Web was a relatively new phenomenon. Yes. <laughs> You've so, got mail. Um, you know, so one of the things that I do, just a real quick story, not to take over here, but, you know, um, I check the the journals every night, the Senate and the House journals. And so when you go to their web pages and you click the tabs and you go down, um, you know, you click on the date. And if the date's highlighted, it means something's been loaded to it. If you're familiar with the, the Senate website or the House website, 
Well, so it had been hours and it wasn't uploading and I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And so finally I click within the frame on the page. I click refresh, not the refresh up in the browser, but within the frame. And it gives me the option reload frame. So if you do it right there, like right click and you'll see reload frame. Right. And so anyway, I'm like, okay, well, what's a frame? Now, I'm not an IT guy, but... Well, the I, fact that they use frames bespeaks the uh, the relative age yeah. of the website. So I Google something <laughs> about frames, and like one of the first response, or, you know, uh, when you Google something, the yeah. first whatever, it was like, if you're still using frames, please stop. You know, it was like, <laughs> right. right. You're, if you're using you're, frames, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yes. the, your browser's no longer supported. That's funny. Um, real quick, though, Bo, tell me about the journals. I don't... So uh, looking at the Senate webpage or the House webpage, so across the top you'll see like House. I've got Senate pulled up here and we're looking at it. And we're kind of looking at it. If you go over to um, Calendars, I believe, oh, and then go down Senate Journals, and then you'll go to uh, the top one, which is the 57th Legislature, and then you click on a hyperlink for the day. That basically tells you everything that happened in the Senate for that day. Hot dog. So it tells you exactly, you know, it gives a committee report, what bills came out of committee, what they did, how people voted. Ooh, um, yes. So um, which senators voted yay, nay, uh, which ones were excused, were out. So it's kind of a, a daily wrap-up of everything that happened. And the House does the same thing on the House side. Excellent. I learn something new every day. I have not had a chance to explore the websites fully, and this is a lovely new development, Scott. I anticipate you and I will be texting these to one another on <laughs> A lot, a lot. So like last week, uh, you know, like today, the Senate journals came out. Well, you know, I'm lying. I haven't checked today, but nothing happened today. Right. um, But last week, you know, on those days that you were talking about where they heard like 90 bills, you know, it could take hours Mm -hmm. before, Mm -hmm. you know, you hear. And so kind of one of those things, and I I could be making this up, but it's like when they say when the clerk's desk is clear, Mm -hmm. you know, I've kind of maybe put two and two together. I think that's when they get the journals done. Hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. that, and I may be way off on that, but it's like, <laughs> it seems like when they get everything uploaded and that's when the journals come out. Right, right. Because they're probably kind of typing minutes as they go along, so. Correct. And, of course, you know, on the Senate side, it's uh, it seems to be a little more efficient, but, of course, you got half as many people. Yeah, so. everything's over a little different over there. Yeah. Scott, uh, in your opinion, as we look at those bills that have um, – already been signed by the governor. Which one do you think is the most significant? So I think this is going to surprise you. I'm, I'm ready. Please so lay it and, on me. And it's, and it's because the reason I think it's going to be, it may surprise you is because we have talked, as you mentioned, we've talked quite a bit about the bills and saying that the governor can hire and fire agency heads and can uh, appoint, have a majority of board appointments for governing boards for agencies. And I think that you and I have both been kind of like, all right, so <laughs> like, that's, that's fine, right? Like he, you know, he ran on that. It was one of his campaign promises. He's, you know, wanting to make himself and the office of the governor accountable for agency performance. He feels like this is what he needs to do that. Fine. Like, you know, the argument against it has been like that it will actually decrease transparency and accountability. I, I kind of struggle with that a little bit, honestly. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about this. and I think actually... Those bills, that's where I'm going to land. So the bills giving the governor the hire, the hiring and firing authority for agency directors and majority appointments on the boards, I think have the most potential to impact 
Oklahoma governance in the long term, um, but also in the short term. I think we could see dramatic changes in the way some things are done next year. And I think that the impact will be will be significant, but will also be very difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I say that is because one of the things that agency heads have done typically is make a budget request, right? So like, let's say I am, you know, the, the director of the Department of Corrections, and I feel like, uh, hey, you want to know what we need? We need a billion and a half dollars to upgrade our facilities, to give raises to our officers, to hire the, enough staff. Like if you, like, we know, like, Commissioner Albaugh, he's com- commissioner, right, of DOC, or is he direct? What's his formal title? The well, no, I'm boss, confused. boss man, Albaugh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, commissioner, director, yeah, okay, yeah, something like that. Um, CD. Alba, you know, he's he's <laughs> there. You go, <laughs> nice. We just we just made it. We just gave him his title, right? Like, so he put in an appropriation request for next year's budget of one point five billion dollars for DOC. Mm-hmm. He knows he's not going to get that, right? Like, but that's what he asked for, and part of the reason the agency heads do that is to make a political statement to highlight what they think are the needs facing their agency. Like this is a way for the people to know what we like the resources we require to do our job the way we think we should be able to do it. Well now because those agency heads will be appointments of the governor who also submits a budget, their budget request and the governor's budget request have to be in line. And they're also at will employees. The governor can terminate them anytime. Right. So if the commissioner of the corrections comes out and says, uh, we need a billion and a half dollars to do our job. Well, the governor's office can say, no, we think you need 500 million to do your job. Well, and that's the budget request you're going to make. Like it takes away a little bit of the kind of megaphone that agency heads have to highlight places in their department that they think are underfunded. And I mean, maybe that won't end up being a big deal, but I feel like that's a, a huge amount of the politics that happens right now. Um, and I think that's going to go away. Well, and the, you know, and not to say that Oklahoma has, you know, billions of dollars lying around, but then the, there's the flip side of that argument too. You could ask for more and the governor's office could agree and you don't need that much money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right. well, and I, think and, that's, I think that's the argument that the governor's office would make is that agency heads are inflating their budget requests just to get more money to like, you know, uh, kind of prop up their little fiefdom, right? Like that's, 100% and maybe that's right like I don't I don't have I have not had the time to go through the the balance sheets of all these agencies and see like you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, um, so I just think that's I think that f- for many reasons but that reason specifically that's going to be really interesting right well and so I think and we'll kind of wrap up here because we're taking too long in this section but I think the other thing about that is that with the way that agency heads have been hired in the past or appointed by boards that they are um, independent of the executive branch. And so they do operate probably as a little fiefdom, right? Like as their own little thing. And so they have to make a statement. And I think what Governor Stitt is trying to achieve here, and this, the reason for all these bills is that he's trying to legitimately improve communication and collaboration between agencies so that the the executive branch isn't, totally disconnected and caught off guard so that it's so that if Abba asks for one and a half billion dollars Stitt knows it's coming because he's been there and, and they are aware those are the needs and the request is a reasonable request within reason sure. you know like of, of what their actual need is and it's not there's less need to make a political statement because if you are running the state as a business then you should be in touch with your 
business department heads and you know what's happening because you're all part of the same mechanism. And I, I would argue, and this is uh, to Governor Stitt's credit, this is the, the part of the analogy I think makes sense, is that state government has has for a long time been very disconnected, right? Where the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing. And if it did, we might be able to work a little bit better together to achieve some of those outcomes. And, to, and so if it's like, oh, well, that's really what you need, instead of everyone jostling for scarce resources. And I, Scott, I feel like we've talked about this on the show before that in many ways our state operates from this scarcity mentality where we are having to compete, where DOC has to compete with mental health, has to be with the Department of Health or Public Safety or Transportation for precious dollars. And when that happens, then then it is not collaborative. It is not teamwork. It is every man for himself just trying to not have to lay off half their staff, right? And, and many times laying off people anyway. And so I think this is a move in the right direction, in my humble opinion. You know, I think that certainly, I mean, I think that that's, absolutely the way that it can turn out and i'm not trying to i'm not trying to say when i say that i think it's going to be a big deal that they can't do that anymore i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing i just think it's going to be like that i think is that is the inability of the inability of agency heads to make budget requests independent of the governor's office i think that's a i think that is an underappreciated ramification of this new system and i agree i agree with like everything that you said like that makes a whole lot of that makes a whole lot of sense. I would say with one caveat. That makes a whole lot of sense if the underlying goal is, as the governor says it is, to make sure that government is functioning both as efficiently and as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. If the goal is to make government as cheap as possible, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> then this is a this would actually be a great way to like block transparency, right? Like if this is if, if the goal is to lower costs, no matter what, which is, I think, what has been the goal for the last, I don't know, decade or so mm-hmm. of Oklahoma governments, then this could turn into a, a bad thing real quickly, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that you're right, like what Governor Stitt is doing. I mean, you know, in terms of we're going to talk a little bit later about kind of how, how his first, I don't know how many days it's been, 100 and something days have been, um, like... I think he deserve, deserves a lot of credit for the job that he's done so far. And mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think he is kind of taking a best practices approach from the business world and bringing it to government. And I think that that'll be really, really effective as long as, as long as the desire is the same to have something that is efficient, yes, but also really effective, not merely the lowest possible cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I know we need to move on here, but, you know, the way that govern, uh, government's going to work it removes that barrier that the governor could have to where it's like, oh, well, that was the director made those decisions because ultimately someone in a CEO position, uh, well, look at it this way. Who's the more valuable employee, a health department employee or a department of corrections employee? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you have right. to make tough budget decisions right, right. and now it's like, okay, you can't play that off on the directors. It's like the directors made those choices. Well, no, you did. You hired the directors, you yeah, chose the right. directors and it removes all that. And so, you know, it is a gamble, especially with, uh, you know, the way the economy, you know, the people are forecasting the way the economy is going to go over the next 18 months or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's a huge change, huge yeah. change. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to some of the notable bills that have died or at least appear to be dead so far. We know that there's always 
zombie bills and the opportunity for things to come back from the dead. So um, House Bill 1182, which would have revoked the medical license of any physician that performed an abortion in which the mother's life was not endangered. That is effectively dead. Uh, Medicaid expansion, at least Senator McCourtney's proposal, um, seems to be dead. Scott, you say maybe not. Yeah, so uh, word on the street is that Senator McCourtney and uh, Representative McIntyre, who had a Medicaid expansion-ish bill that did pass Mm -hmm. the House and has been sent over to the Senate, um, they're kind of uh, communicating a lot. And apparently what's most important is that one of those two bills is still alive. Sure. The language that is ultimately going to be in that piece of legislation, the title, all those sorts of things, that is apparently yet to be determined. So um, so it is entirely possible that the language we saw in Senator McCourtney's proposal um, could come back as like a floor sub or committee sub when McIntyre's bill gets to the gets uh, to the Senate. So um, Medicaid, it, it looks like some form of Medicaid expansion is potentially still kind of mm-hmm. making its way towards the finish line. Um, what that's going to look like at the end of the day is uh, anybody's guess. Yeah, that's a good question. We'll we'll have an episode in the coming weeks all about Medicaid expansion because it is a sticky wicket. Um, uh, Senator Young's bill to increase the minimum wage from up to ten fifty an hour um, is dead. Just if you're doing math at home, if you make ten dollars and fifty cents an hour, that would be twenty one thousand eight hundred and forty dollars a year which is not, as they say, living high on the hog. Less than 22000 you can't, you can't live on that. So uh, minimum wage, anyway, that's toast. So it's still down in, I don't know, seven and a quarter, I think is what it actually is. Yes, sir. Um, also, uh, the bill to charge legislators who author bills that are found later to be unconstitutional, um, that is dead. I did see, I read about that in a brief fun fact that if it had passed, the bill or the fine that they would have faced was only $46. And so I was like, well, that's not even enough to really dissuade most folks. But anyway, um, also there was a bill to exempt Oklahoma from daylight savings time. That is dead. I share that only because we just had the entry into daylight savings time. I read a lot about that this year. I think it was very, uh, very interesting. I like that you just stuck your head into the frame there. Yeah. Oh, whoops. People yeah. who are watching it, I forget. I, f- I forget the cameras there a lot. But for the three viewers, Bo being one of them, <laughs> yes. we'll see you later. There are a lot of uh, studies out there on daylight savings times, and I feel like the older I get, the harder it is to adjust. Yeah. Well, so most people want to, most people want to adopt daylight saving time all the year. They don't want to adopt regular time or standard time. So, but there's all these congressional rules and states that are looking at. Like move not because you have to get congressional approval to actually drop it or change it, but the state by themselves could choose to shift to a different time zone. So like if um, if Oklahoma voted during regular time to shift to Eastern time zone rather than Central time, then we would effectively have daylight saving time all year round. We would just shift over and there's like we're not gonna lie i'm lost (laughs) it's you know it's never the shift has never been it's never been too tough for me even on uh on spring forward um until this year and it's because you're old uh, well i'm old but also you and i and our spouses were at an event and we went we went out we went out after the event well it was it it didn't seem that late but we were we were leaving our uh leaving our last stop and i was like oh it's uh one four one forty five. Oh, but oh, so 
we've already jumped forward. And you were like, no, oh, no, yeah. man. I was like, it's three o'clock in the yeah. morning. <laughs> yeah, we left at two and got home at three. And it was a, oh. a five minute drive. That's the way it works. <laughs> so um, I played soccer the same way. I ended a game at two one time, indoor soccer. And then it was two and then it was three by the time I got home. Uh, and I did not make it to church the next day. Now, my affairs. younger days, we used to take full advantage of that at the bars on fall back. When the bars would go from, oh sure, right, you know, one fifty-five sure. to twelve fifty-five or whatever. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I remember them. The other ways I remember them just close on an hour early and being like, "You're on your own, suckers." So <laughs> you know what you don't want to be if you're a, if you're if you're a medical resident, you don't you don't want to be the guy who's on call on Ooh. a fallback weekend because mm-hmm. uh, it's two. You only got five hours left, and then uh, oh no, you still have five hours. Now, left. now you yeah. still have five hours left. Yeah, yeah. Mm. daylight savings time a very polarizing issue in our time. Um, also, some other bills that, that we have care about, things that are on our legislative agenda this year. Um, elimination of straight party voting, that's dead. Automatic voter registration, that's dead. Nonpartisan county elections, non-party uh, sheriff elections, those are both dead. Independent redistricting, um, the bills that have been proposed are dead. Um, I, there are some groups working on ballot initiatives for several of these items. Uh, and in fact, next week we're going to have a, a special, not a special, next week's episode, we'll have a big um, piece about independent redistricting. Our our intern, um, Megan, has been working on a, a blog post about this. We'll have this in the next week. She listened to the full 538 gerrymandering series. You'll appreciate that, Scott. Bless you, Megan. Uh, and so um, I believe she will join us next week as well as some of her classmates. Um and uh, I need to reach out to uh, Dr. Gaddy and see if he can come or join us by phone. That would be tremendous to talk about that. So, um, all right. So we also, uh, you know, what you, of these bills that have died or appeared dead, Andy, what do you, uh, what do you think? What, which one of these are, what are the most like significant? Um, you know, I mean, I think arguably for us, for Let's Fix This in particular, because some of these are on our very first legisl- legislative agenda that we didn't work this year. There was no, I was not at the Capitol. I've been up there one day all of session for our Capitol day. So far, these weren't things we were pushing because I, I think the sense was they were dead on arrival. Yeah. Um, a lot of what we are doing is is trying to do education, both with the voters and with legislators about some of this stuff, but not like technically working the vote on anything. Um and I think that's that's um, I I don't think that has contributed to their life or death by by any means, um, but I do think, as I said earlier, uh, as we move towards twenty twenty, I fully expect to see one or more ballot initiatives come out of this stuff. Um, we I know I've had some meetings with people that are trying to build coalitions around some of these issues, and um, because people are really looking and and I think. All of these issues, all these issues are nonpartisan to the extent that they appear partisan only to the party in power, right? So right yeah. now it, it happens to be Republicans are in power, but these were issues 20 years ago when Democrats are in power and they didn't change it either. And most of these issues are the opponents are the party structure themselves. Right. No, I I totally agree. And I think you're right. I think... Uh, I think in 2020, a lot of us are going to get sick of being asked to sign petitions when we're in the parking lot of <laughs> the the grocery store or walking into a you know a Thunder game or whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah, but I encourage people to take take time to find out what they're mm-hmm. doing. Right, like totally. This, I mean, this is literally grassroots organizing at its core, and I think just trying to get through that is a big deal. Totally. And, and on that note, I will say it's like just because you you sign 
that doesn't mean you necessarily endorse it. It still right. has to go to the ballot. Right. right. And so, like, you know, a couple of years ago when uh, uh, the uh, we were just talking about recreational marijuana, mm-hmm. I signed that because right. it's like, why not? Right. You know, right. let's put it on the ballot and see what happens. Right. But like, that doesn't mean, mean I'm necessarily for it. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. My general, people ask me, like, should you sign those things? I usually say I sign all of them um, because, like, Oh, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I want to see, can you get it on the ballot? And then if it gets on the ballot, that's when I'm going to, like, I'm going to read the language. I'm going to see how I feel about the issue. And then I'm going to decide, do I vote for this or not? But I think that for the most part, um, people deserve the chance to to vote on it. We should get to see it on the ballot. But all yeah. right, moving on, uh, what do we have that is still left? What are, what are some bills that are s- still out there trying to make their way to the finish line, trying to get towards the goal? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, the state stake. The state stake. SB 21 by Senator Murdoch. I believe this enshrines the ribeye as the official state of Oklahoma. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I, I have to say that I offer that my uh, hearty endorsement. Um, I, I, I'll be honest. Um, I love a good ribeye. My wife is m- mostly vegetarian, and I've drifted that way over the years myself. Except she loves a ribeye. Not, not remotely. <laughs> she probably has not <laughs> had red meat in... Uh, She's a vegetarian, except for a right, except for a blood just, red ribeye. Just that one cut of, of beef. Um, no, so she hasn't uh, hasn't had a, a red meat in a long time. Um, she will eat chicken on occasion, fish on occasion, but somewhat rare. Um, but I also have cut way back on red meat just for health issues. Got family history of stuff. More for me. Um, it's more for you. I'm, I'm I don't I'm not opposed. Like every so often, I just I got to go to Tucker's. Um, in our late night escapade a few weeks ago, I had uh, I had a steak. It was the first one in a long time. It was delicious. Yeah, I, I forgot what I missed out. Yeah. So um, I am impartial as far as cuts. I really like a – it's great. Delicious. I'm, I'm sure it'll pass. We've also got a beer that would allow strong beer and wine at sporting events and art and music festivals. That is still alive. We have House Bill 1018 by Representative McIntyre. Busy session for Representative Marcus McIntyre of Duncan. He's got a, mm-hmm. He's gotten a lot of bills through this year. Um, this has been assigned to the Senate Education Committee. This is the HIV education mandate that would update our 30-year-old right. uh, HIV education standards we have in Oklahoma. Yeah, so 32 years technically. They were last updated in 1987, which, as I may have said before on this show... We barely knew what HIV was. Well, yeah. I mean, it had only been around for six years. And in 1987 was the year that the very first HIV medications came out, AZT, Um Quite a lot has changed since then. Uh, just a tad. Literally everything. So We've also got House Bill 1269 by Representative Jason Dunnington, House District 88, friend of the show. Uh, this is a bill that would make state question 780 retroactive. I believe that uh, Leader Eccles is a co-sponsor on that bill, co-author, so, yep. I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously it's got to have some Senate sponsors as well now, and I've, there's several on there. Um, but I think we should have Dunnington invite yeah. him on the show to talk about this because this is important. I think he, I think he'd be happy to do that. And I, uh, I honestly feel like this will pass this session. Yes. Governor Stitt has spoken very highly of, um, of criminal justice reforms, this and others. So I'm, I'm optimistic. From yeah. a business standpoint, it just makes sense. Totally. I mean, what are you spending for these people to be in jail that oh, wouldn't yeah. go bananas nowadays? Totally. You know, so. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Senate Bill 509. This is not a bill that we have talked about on the show, um, but I think it's really important, and it will affect 
the vast majority of Oklahomans. So this is a bill that would restrict what's called step therapy. So if any of you have ever seen a doctor um, and your doctor has prescribed a medicine and then, you know, maybe they give you samples or maybe you go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy is like, oh, that's going to be $700 because your insurance doesn't cover that. Um, but maybe they'll cover this other one that they like better. Um, this would be a bill that would significantly restrict your insurance company's ability to do that. It would say that no insurance companies, if they're going to have uh, step therapy where you have to try and fail one drug before you can progress to the next drug or the next drug, those requirements have to be based on the best available medical evidence um, and clinical guidelines. Um, if there's a bill, if there's a, a medication or a treatment that they want to deny uh, and you appeal that process, they have to respond within three days. Um, it would, I think this would, this would be a significant step forward in allowing physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, whoever you're seeing to prescribe you the medicine that they think is best for you and the condition that you have without your insurance company saying, oh, no, no, you have to use this other one first. Because I'll tell you that most of the time, those deals that are in place from your insurance company, it's not because the medicine that they want you to use works better. It's because they have a deal with the manufacturer of that medicine to get it much cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, that's where that comes from. If you want to read more about this, um, there's a great op-ed from the Oklahoma Osteopathic Association in the Tulsa world. Um, check it out for sure. Um, and then the last, and this is there's this is not a bill, um, but it is an issue that is very much alive and that no one is talking about because I think it was assumed by a lot of folks that this would be kind of not, you know, this wouldn't going to be a big, a big deal this year. Um, but you know what else is left guys? The budget, the budget, the budget, the budget. We have not done the budget yet. Constitutionally, the legislature is required to pass the education budget by April 1st. Uh, word on the street is that that is not going to happen. So you um, have uh, <laughs> six days. Yeah. There's, there's no chance we're going to meet that uh, benchmark this year. Um, but the reason I say that this is, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room again this year because of that $200 million, right? Like everybody thought, oh, the budget won't be a big deal. We have this extra cash. We can fund a teacher pay raise. We can do some things. Well, there's $200 that a lot of folks, $200 million that a lot of folks in the legislature want to spend. And there's $200 million that the governor wants to put in the savings account. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't do both. <laughs> you can either, you can spend it or as uh, as they say at 23rd and Lincoln, appropriate it, uh -huh. or you can uh, put it in the rainy day fund, but you can't do both. Uh, Bo, are you, uh, what are you hearing about how this is going to go down? Are you hearing anything? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm sure they're going to end up having to spend it here. So, and the reason why is because I think you might have some notes here on the, I don't want to get out ahead of myself here, but <laughs> there uh, was a story that came out today. And again, not, not to steal anybody's thunder, but I saw it here and I, I, I read it earlier. That's, on that's why it's there. Uh, so OMES, uh, I saw former representative uh, Cockroft had uh, tweeted the tweet, however you say that, but it was one of those things to where OMES is like uh, 60 or 120 days behind on some of their bills. And mm -hmm. so they need, they, several million dollars. They need seven million, I think, by April one, and they need sixteen million overall, um, or they're not going to be able to make payroll and 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 uh, pay some of these vendors. And I think what the legislature is hearing is, uh, "Oh, I remember not too long ago when another state agency said that Heard they were that before, they yeah. were thirty million in the hole, they couldn't make payroll, and turns out they had the money the whole time. The money was there all along. Um, so that's true. Yeah, OMES. This is an article." Uh, News OK, I think, has a piece out about this today. There's been several places that have, that have talked about it. Um, Senator Thompson, who's the Senate Appropriations Chair, says uh, 
doesn't look like they're going to get that full 16 million. Um, he's not excited about it. I think they're going to make him, I think they're going to make him a hole for the sevens that can pay their vendors. But beyond that, the other nine, they're going to take a hard look at, but I think you're right. They're going to have to spend some of it. Um, there's a huge push for increased classroom funding for, you know, for the state education system. And that's where I think a lot of lawmakers, especially some of these new folks that were elected, you know, hashtag Oklahoma ed. Um, okay. Okay. LA ed, right? Yeah. Oklahoma ed. Oklahoma ed. Um, I think that there's a there's a, a sentiment that that, that two hundred million could be well spent in the classroom. Um, Governor Stitt made the point on an interview that he uh, had with Ben Felder, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. Um, that you know it's great to say that we're going to we can spend that two hundred million, but because of the it's a it's a fund that passed I think two years ago where it's like the it's a fund that's designed to kind of f- like smooth out fluctuations in state dollars that can be appropriated. And we have to have this like reserve that meets a five year rolling average. If all the economic forecasts remain the same mm-hmm. next year, we're going to have about $400 million less to appropriate. And so his point is like, I don't think we want to like pad the coffers too much and then have to cut agencies next year. But I think that lawmakers are under a lot of pressure to appropriate those dollars you know, my sense, I mean, I have not spoken to the governor about this. I think if the lawmakers send him a budget that spends that 200 million, I would be surprised if he vetoed it. Like, I don't know yeah. if it's going to come to that kind of showdown. Um, but it would be the first real break, I think, uh, between the legislature and the governor since he was elected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see, I, you know, my personal opinion, again, I, you know, I haven't talked to the governor myself either, but I just... What I have seen, it seems like the governor and um, Speaker McCall and Pro Tem Treat, they all seem to be working together and very well. And so I think what you'll end up seeing with the budget is something that they've all agreed upon before it yeah. ever gets that far. I think you're probably right, which is probably for the best. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to mention a few articles that um, came out this week. I'm going to go ahead and uh, and do our news sound because it is the news roundup we're just doing the back of the hour rather than the top um so we've got uh, a few articles we're not going to go into super in depth but there's an article in the washington post um about the uh debacle at the nawada county jail um because the sheriff quit right yeah dude so the short (laughs) the short version is nawada county apparently has been like the the jail and just sheriff's office situation up there for several years has really not been great. They're having trouble keeping a sheriff. They've been through several. There's been a lot of the most recent sheriff was uh, arrested and kicked out of office for embezzling things. There's I mean, it's it's been bad. And their jail right now is not like habitable. Like they have moved all of the prisoners out of the jail. Um, a judge, a local judge ordered the sheriff to take all the prisoners back to the jail, despite the carbon monoxide poisoning and black mold and snakes. Yes, that's real. Carbon monoxide poisoning, black mold and snakes that are infesting the jail. He ordered the sheriff, uh, the sheriff to take them back. And um, the sheriff, she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so she resigned her under sheriff resigned. Like they've like, they've all quit. There's literally five employees left at the Nevada County Sheriff department right now to like run the department, staff the jail, like people are saying, like for real, like if we need police in Nevada County, we don't know what to do. Only two towns up there have their own independent police department. Um, it's right. it's like a it's a legit bad kind of crisis type situation. So I well, we're not going to get into the to the any more detail than that. But check out this article on the Washington Post. We'll link to it on the blog. It's 
it's a fascinating story that's still evolving. Right. Yeah. So Nawada, um, I just Googled is, uh, just east of Bartlesville, north of Tulsa, way up in the northeast corner of the state, pretty far up there. Um, wow. Okay. That's, I'm going to read that. I have not read that yet, but I saw a few headlines in that. Sounds like a made for TV movie waiting to happen. Indeed. All right. So also there's the, uh, perpetual joint working group. Um, I, is this also about mar- medical marijuana? It is, yeah. So this is the trailer bill. So they passed the unity bill. The governor signed the unity bill, but there's been twenty-ish trailer <laughs> bills that have that have to be uh, that are that are kind of going through the process as well. That would clean up some language, adjust some things. Um, this is a piece from the Tulsa World. They've got Senator McCourtney uh, on record there, along with um, uh, Senator Daniels, I think, as well, um, talking about you know that they really feel like this is. Uh, kind of the end of the road like the medical the medical they think the, the joint working group seems like it's a, it's done its job and these are these are bills that are mm-hmm. just kind of designed to clean up some loose ends from uh from the unity bill now if uh the you know the, we mentioned earlier in the show the the lawsuit if they if those folks do get their injunction then that changes that changes everything but um check this out if you want to know more about where uh the mmj industry in oklahoma is headed and you know what um what rest- what 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 further rules are being passed you can you can check this out would you say this is the last dance with mary jane oh that was <laughs> solid, solid. Yeah, where's my ring, right. a rim shot i every time i'm oh, right. never on right. it yeah um, um all right and so then um scott you and i met, both mentioned that uh this week last week um news okay's political state podcast uh, with ben felder which is great not as good as us but still really great um <laughs> is um they really they are probably better than us but just different but they had an interview yeah, yeah, with not better different no we're all we need to have like a cross episode we should um so uh, i have another podcast we're gonna do a joint thing with from i think kgou anyway that's an aside um don't if listeners just ignore that yeah. strike that from the record he didn't say that stricken delete um, delete delete that's right <laughs> um but anyway, News OK's Political State did an interview with Governor Stitt. It's only about 20 minutes long. It's a really great interview. I listened to it on my drive here today. Um, and I, to some degree, I find Governor Stitt very interesting in his um, his rhetoric. Some, he used some football analogies about blocking and tackling. Blocking and tackling. Things that do resonate with regular everyday Oklahomans um, and, uh, and his approach. And he genuinely sounds like he, that... He believes what he says, that he is just enjoying the hell out of being governor. Like, it's fun, it's exciting, it's interesting every day. And I'm sure it's a big difference for him than selling mortgages, right? So this is a, um, get to meet a lot of cool people, and I think it's an interesting insight. He was very affable in the in the interview, and so I encourage everyone to listen to it. Um, again, it's a, it's a good episode. Yeah, And is. then, Scott, you sent me an article called our CEOs born leaders. Yeah. So this is, um, and I cannot take full credit for this. Um, so this is a hat tip to, uh, Matt Iglesias from blocks.com and the weeds podcast. So, um, you know, I thought that was interesting because, uh, you know, what we have heard from the governor during the campaign and since he's been elected is that he's really putting a premium on people with executive business experience as he's hiring cabinet members, as he's hiring agency directors, he really feels like that's where he needs to go. And that's where, the, that's, that is the kind of expertise and leadership that is needed for the, you know, kind of hashtag Oklahoma turnaround, right? Mm-hmm. To be kind of top 10 and all these, all, all of these metrics. Um, so one of the things that's been, one of the things that I think is really interesting is to ask the question, right? So, I mean, 
are CEOs like is that is that an is that assumption that CEOs provide this kind of leadership is that borne out right? right and is there something about people who are CEOs kind of intrinsic that lend them that they mean they have the qualities for this kind of leadership and so it turns out that from the uh, social sciences research network um, on Harvard Business School and some good folks in Sweden we can start to answer that question um, so this is a paper that looked at uh, a sample size of 1.3 million Swedes, okay, of whom... But but only Swedes. Only Swedes, of whom 26,000 were CEOs, okay? Um, and the reason that they can do this is because the Swedes uh, use conscription. And so every male, and maybe females too, when they turn 18, um, as part of their conscription evaluation, they undergo physical testing, cognitive testing, and then non-cognitive, like... Abilities and by conscription, you mean mandatory For military service, military or civil service? Yeah, I didn't know that Sweden had a military. Uh, yes, yes, the Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if the Swedes are Vikings. I don't, that's that's probably totally wrong. That'd be the that'd be Norsemen, right? The Nor- Norway, that's Vikings. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere up there, Swedes would just be who has the fjords? Norway, that's Norway, Swedes. We're so like it's, falling off track, but but what they can do though is so they looked at so in this paper they looked at 1.3 million Swedes, okay, and they looked at them to see like you know what what are qualities that you can identify in cognitive ability, non cognitive ability, and height actually um, that predict whether someone's going to be a successful CEO. So it is Vikings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the data is was collected on men that were born between 1951 and 1978. Um, and they compared them to the general population, but also uh, also uh, men that were law- men that were lawyers, doctors, physicians, engineers, and college-educated finance professionals. That's still a limited sample size. Well, no, but I'm saying they, like, that's what they like. They, that was not their reference population, but they were like, where do CEOs compare to people who did oh, those okay. who did those things, right. right? As in addition to comparing them to the general population, so um, they looked at CEOs in general display considerably higher trait values than the population as a whole, and the traits of large company CEOs, which is defined as a company with a net, net assets of 1.3 billion um, US are about at par or higher than those with physicians, lawyers, engineers, and finance professionals. Um, Now, this is interesting. CEOs managing smaller firms and family firms have lower traits, particularly if they come from the founding family and did not found the company themselves. Hmm. So like a child who is taking over a father's business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that. (laughs) <laughs> like a child who took over a family business that his dad founded right. and kept it all within the family and kept it really small. I, I see where those, you're going here. Those, uh, I don't know if that sounds like anybody we know. Um, interestingly, non-cognitive ability is the best predictor of like success and appointment to a CEO position. Um, cognitive ability was more important for larger companies that are more likely to hire their CEOs externally rather than like kind of promote from within. It's a, it's a super, super interesting paper. It's like 70 pages long. So we don't, you know, we're not, we could spend like three whole episodes going through the whole thing. But um, the short story is there are some traits that CEOs exhibit that can be predictive of, that you can have it in eight, in, in eight, as an 18 year old that can predict future success as a CEO of a large company. Yeah. Um, and so there, there may be some idea, some like substance to this idea that CEOs are intrinsically better at leading and managing people than other professionals. 
there's also some evidence as we uh, as we kind of roll out here. Some evidence that entrepreneurs and architects share some uh, brain function. That there's a similar creative process that applies. That doesn't affect your article. I just wanted to share that. Um, I do want to <laughs> give two um, two announcements for upcoming events that you do not want to miss. Uh, on Tuesday, March 26th at 6 p.m. Uh, at the Tower Theater uh, here in Oklahoma City, we're going to have an event called 321 Council Contact, um, where uh, we will be there, Scott and I will be there, along with uh, Stephen, John, and Aaron from The Wafty Show. So we're going to have a kind of a dueling podcast format with three of the city council members from Oklahoma City, James Cooper, Nikki Nice, and um, Joe Beth Hammond. Um, we are pretty excited about that. <laughs> We got to figure out how we're going to put it together, but it's going to be a really cool event. I guarantee that, um, as everything is. Oops, I turned the volume down too far. Um, also, uh, April twenty third is our next Capital Day, and then May fourth. Mark that on your calendar. Saturday, May fourth. Bo, write this down. This will be our uh, a night to remember, a prom for adults. So this is our spring fundraiser. It's going to be a super fun event. Not overly political, but it's going to be a really great event. Um, tickets are on sale now at letsfixthisok.org slash prom. Honestly, just go to our website and it'll pop up a little ad for you um, to drive you there and you will start seeing ads in your social media feed soon. Tickets are on sale right now for $75 each through the end of March. So if you want to save a little bit of money and ask your honey to come with you or just a friend or anybody, mom, that's fine. Um, if we, you, go ahead. If you didn't go to your high school prom or even if you did, you need to come to this one because this one's going to be better. Right. We'll have uh, corsages. We'll have boutonnieres. It's really cheesy pictures, lots of balloons, the whole deal. So, all right, that's it for this week. Tune in next week for uh, information about redistricting. Have a good week.